from Minnesota Public Radio and National Public Radio. This is an American Radio Works special report. Shadow over Lockerbie. It's like for us any other murder would be, that someone has murdered our daughter. I'm Bill Busenberg. 270 people died when Pan Am 103 was blown out of the sky over Lockerbie, Scotland on December 21, 1988. It was and is the worst act of airline terrorism against the United States. There was just this great trail of damage, luggage, and bodies. Finally, more than 11 years later, two Libyan men prepare to face trial for the Lockerbie bombing this spring. In this special report, we examine the case against the Libyans, its strengths and weaknesses. Some close observers, including former investigators involved in the case, say if the Libyans are guilty, they may not be the only culprits. This hour, shadow over Lockerbie. First, the news. This is a special report from American Radio Works, Shadow over Lockerbie. I'm Bill Busenberg. It's been more than 11 years since Pan Am 103 blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing all 259 people on board and 11 more on the ground. Two suspects, both alleged members of the Libyan Intelligence Service, are due to go on trial May 3rd, more than eight years after they were indicted. Under an unusual deal that broke the stalemate, the trial will be held in the Netherlands before a panel of Scottish judges. But some close observers say the trial may not offer a complete answer to the question of who bombed Pan Am 103. Reporters Ian Ferguson and John Bewin of American Radio Works have taken an in-depth look at this case. John Bewin narrates our report. The world's airports fill up at holiday time. For many travelers, it's a long-awaited journey home. In 1988, four days before Christmas, 259 passengers and crew boarded a Pan Am flight from London to New York. Most were Americans. Pan Am 103, a 747 like this one, climbed into the dark English sky at 6.25 in the evening, heading northwest. 38 minutes later, as the jet cruised over the border from England into Scotland, something in the cargo hold exploded. It blew a hole the size of a large dinner plate in the airliner's skin. The loss of air pressure caused a powerful rush that broke the plane to pieces. I was sitting in front of the fire, which was was on that side of my other house, the window there. Six miles below, in the Scottish border town of Lockerbie, Ella Ramsden sat down to open Christmas cards. And then all of a sudden, the noise started. Like louder and louder, it was a terrible noise. The swelling roar came from a falling 60-foot section of airplane fuselage. It landed miraculously between two rows of houses, missing them all. But the impact rocked Ella's house like an earthquake. Well, the house started just to break up all round about me. And I held on to the door with that hand and the, the deep freeze door with this and I just huddled in there. When everything settled, I can remember the the quietness, the real quietness. Mrs. Ramsden was lucky. Her house fell around her, but not on her. Across town, a wing of the 747 fell directly on several houses. The resulting fireball vaporized three homes and the 11 people in them. What actually happened? There was this absolutely massive sort of red glow in the sky that went first, firstly upwards and then out, and then this sort of um, bright orange center. 
That night, police, journalists, and rescue workers gradually figured out what had fallen on Lockerbie like violent rain from some nightmare. A jumbo jet and its cargo, fuel, and passengers. It was just a scene of fire, smell, people dashing here, there, and everywhere. There was just this great trail of damage, luggage, uh, and bodies lying stretched out from the town. Of course, everyone, as far as we were concerned, was alive until somebody proved otherwise. But every call that came back or every message that came back said, uh, no survivors, no survivors. We were awaiting our daughter, who was a high school exchange student, uh, to come back for Christmas. I got a call from the travel agent saying that uh, a Pan Am plane had gone down and it, it might be the one that Melina was on. Paul Hudson, his wife, and three sons were home in New York City. They got confirmation hours later that Paul's 16-year-old daughter, Melina, was on Pan Am 103. Within days, Lockerbie investigators determined a bomb had brought down the plane. This crash was mass murder. For the Hudsons, as for many other relatives of Pan Am 103 victims, the massacre became an obsession. You are permanently changed in some ways. We tried to, to say that, well, we were not going to spend more time on, on Melina than we would have if she was alive. But that's easier said than done. Hudson now runs a nonprofit group devoted to improving airline safety and security. His daughter was one of 189 Americans killed by the Pan Am terrorists, more than died later in the Oklahoma City bombing. But the victims came from 20 other countries, too. We would like to know before we die the background and the reason and who did this terrible crime. Jane Swire's daughter, Flora, was a 23-year-old medical student flying from England to visit her American boyfriend in New York when she died on Pan Am 103. Jane's husband, Jim, recently left his medical practice so he can attend the trial in the Netherlands full-time. It's like for us any other... Murder would be that someone had murdered our daughter, brutally premeditated murder, a horrible death. Can you imagine being hurled into the sub-zero dark skies over Lockerbie with a gale raging at 35,000 feet? And um, someone should be brought to justice for that. The investigation into who blew up Pan Am 103 was a joint British and American effort. Those on the ground in Scotland faced a huge and painstaking task, gathering and sorting tons of potential evidence scattered by the explosion and the wind across more than 800 square miles of countryside. In the meantime, early suspicion focused on one radically anti-American government. Former FBI Assistant Director Buck Revell oversaw the agency's Lockerbie investigation during its first two and a half years. Initially, um, we strongly suspected that uh, the bombing of Pan Am 103 was actually instigated uh, by the Iranian government, by the Khomeini regime, uh, as a retaliation for the Vincennes uh, incident, a very tragic shooting down of the Airbus by the USS Vincennes some six months prior. Iran's ambassador to the United Nations says his country will retaliate to the maximum for the U.S. missile attack on an Iranian civilian airliner yesterday. 
The USS Vincennes fired two missiles. During a tense skirmish with Iranian gunboats in the Persian Gulf in July 1988, the Navy cruiser Vincennes shot down the Iranian jet, which was carrying pilgrims to Mecca. 290 Iranians died. The U.S. government insisted the shootdown was a mistake, but Iran's leaders rejected that claim, says the CIA's chief of counterterrorism at the time, Vincent Canestraro. And uh, there was some immediate planning that U.S. intelligence detected on the part of the Iranians to actually sponsor a revenge operation. I guess you would call it an operation to settle a blood debt. Canestraro says in the late summer of 1988, top Iranian officials met several times with leaders of a terrorist group based in Syria. The group called itself the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine General Command, or PFLPGC. That autumn in West Germany, police watched as alleged members of the PFLPGC set up safe houses, including one in this shaded plaza in the town of Neuss. In October 1988, the German federal police launched a series of raids. They arrested more than a dozen men. They also found a Toshiba radio and cassette player, its insides replaced by plastic explosive and a barometric detonator, an airplane bomb. The West Germans boasted they'd broken up a terrorist plot until two months later when Pan Am 103 blew up over Lockerbie. West Germany began a criminal investigation today to determine whether a bomb was planted aboard Flight 103 in Frankfurt. And CBS News Forensic experts combing through the debris in Lockerbie found the bomb had been hidden in a Toshiba cassette player similar to the one seized in Germany. The immediate feeling was that we've missed someone. By that time, Canestraro was head of the CIA's Lockerbie investigation. That the PFLPGC was successful in carrying it out despite the arrest and that someone in that cell had escaped with one of the explosive devices and succeeded in planting it on Pan Am 103. Canestraro says that possible scenario was a focus of the investigation from the time of the bombing in late 1988 until the middle of 1990. During that time, though, investigators followed other leads. One led to Malta, the tiny island in the southern Mediterranean. Searchers at Lockerbie found scraps of clothing and an umbrella that they determined had been packed in the brown Samsonite suitcase that held the bomb. Whoever bought those items was likely involved in the massacre. A tag helped police trace a couple of the garments they found in Lockerbie to a Maltese clothing store called Mary's House. According to a transcript of a police statement, the proprietor, Tony Gauci, said he remembered a shopper who came in one evening in late 1988. The man was a tall Arab, Gauci said, and he bought trousers, a baby's outfit, and an umbrella like those found at Lockerbie. In a Scottish police statement, Gauci is quoted as saying, The man's behavior was strange. That's why I can now remember. It was as if anything I suggested he buy, he would take it. Who was the mystery shopper? Over the next year and a half, Scottish investigators questioned Tony Gauci again and again. He helped them draw composite sketches. They showed him photos of suspects. In March of 1990, according to another police transcript, Gauci volunteered for detectives that his brother had shown him a newspaper photo of a Palestinian terrorist named Mohammed Abu Taub. Taub had been convicted of blowing up a Northwest Airlines office in Copenhagen. According to the transcript, Gauchi told Scottish police, I think the photograph in the newspaper may have been the man who bought the clothing. He looks like him. 
In fact, Abu Talb was a key suspect in Lockerbie at the time. His accomplice in the Copenhagen bombing was seen coming and going from a PFLPGC safe house in Germany, according to West German police documents. Airport records showed Taub visited Malta in the fall of 1988. At one point, Scottish police had so much evidence against Taub, they sought to extradite him from Sweden. Was there compelling uh, reason to look at Abu Taub? Absolutely, and we did do that. Canestraro, then of the CIA. Did the, uh, the, the law enforcement folk on both sides of the ocean have enough compelling evidence to go before a judge? I'm told that they did, but I don't know the nature of that, and I can't speak to it. Ultimately, though, former investigators say the evidence against Taub proved inconclusive. They say the investigation began turning away from the PFLPGC and toward Libya in the middle of 1990. A year and a half after the explosion, Scottish investigators found something they didn't know what to make of, and they sent it on to Tom Thurman in Washington. At that point, we finally had something tangible to start looking at and trying In an ABC News report, FBI forensic specialist Tom Thurman described a discovery in Lockerbie, a tiny fragment of plastic the size of a child's fingernail. Investigators determined it was part of the circuit board from the timing device that triggered the bomb. Thurman said he then matched the timer to another one seized in West Africa from Libyan agents. When that identification was made of the timer, I knew that we had it absolute, positively euphoria. I was on cloud nine. Like Iran, Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi had a strong motive to attack Americans. In 1986, U.S. warplanes bombed Libya's two biggest cities to punish Gaddafi for alleged terrorist attacks in Europe. Pan Am 103 was Gaddafi's payback, says David Shaler, who headed the Libya desk for British intelligence in the mid-1990s. There was a lot of evidence, as well as intelligence, that's come to the attention of the Scottish police and the law enforcement authorities in the UK in general, which indicates that the regime was involved. Intelligence to indicate that Colonel Gaddafi personally ordered the attack as a direct revenge for the bombing of Tripoli when his adopted two-year-old daughter was killed and he was nearly killed himself. Back in Malta, Scottish police questioning the clothing store proprietor, Tony Gauci, were now focusing on Libyan suspects. The indictment says the man ultimately discovered to have bought the clothes and the umbrella at Mary's house was Abdelbasset Megrahi, one of the Libyan defendants. After a massive three-year investigation, the United States and Britain filed charges in November of 1991. Along with Scottish prosecutors, acting U.S. Attorney General William Barr announced the indictment. We charge that two Libyan officials, acting as operatives of the Libyan Intelligence Service, along with other co-conspirators, planted and detonated the bomb that destroyed Pan Am Flight 103. The question is, is that charge based on solid evidence? I'm Bill Buesenberg. You're listening to a special report on the terrorist bombing of Pan Am 103 in 1988. Two accused Libyans are scheduled to go on trial May 3rd. Coming up, a closer look at the evidence. This fragment of printed circuit board is from a prototype timer. I took those timers to what was then East Germany. This is Shadow Over Lockerbie from American Radio Works and NPR, National Public Radio. This is a special report on the bombing of Pan Am 103 from American Radio Works. I'm Bill Buesenberg. 
Investigators involved in the Lockerbie case say solid evidence led to the indictment of the two Libyans scheduled to face trial this spring. But if the evidence that's been made public is any indication, prosecutors may have trouble getting a conviction. John Bewin continues our report, Shadow over Lockerbie. The alleged bombers, Abdel Basset Megrahi and Alamin Fima, were both managers at Libya Arab Airlines in Malta in 1988. Prosecutors won't talk about their evidence against the two. British law bans public discussion of a pending criminal case. The U.S. Justice Department says the indictment speaks for itself. Defense attorneys, too, are forbidden under British law to talk publicly. The defendants insist they're innocent. They spoke with an American filmmaker in the early 1990s. I didn't see my presence in Malta as a chance to participate in the terrorist acts they've accused me of. A whole nation has unjustly accused me. I don't know why. In the years since the indictment, several top British legal experts have suggested the evidence against the two Libyans appears weak. Others advise caution. John Grant is a Scottish legal scholar, until recently a dean at Glasgow University. We haven't yet heard one word of testimony, and it's always very easy to debunk evidence in advance of a trial. The Crown, I know, is confident about its case. It cited something in the region of a thousand witnesses. So I would reserve judgment on the strength of the evidence uh, until after that evidence is in. That said, a close look at the evidence that investigators have touted over the years suggests the prosecution case may be a hard one to prove. In press conferences, interviews, and government fact sheets, U.S. and British officials have consistently highlighted a few pieces of physical evidence and testimony as proof the two Libyans are guilty. First, the fragment of plastic circuit board found in the Scottish forest. At the press conference announcing the indictment, then-Assistant Attorney General Robert Mueller said investigators determined it came from the timer that triggered the bomb. Further investigation disclosed that this particular timer was one of 20 that had been sold in 1985 to uh, intelligence officers from the JSO. The JSO is the Libyan Intelligence Service. But behind the scenes, the man who allegedly sold the timer to the Libyans was making a different claim. Early in the Lockerbie investigation, Swiss electronics manufacturer Edwin Ballier told police he had sold timers like the one found at Lockerbie only to Libya. But later, Ballier said he'd been reminded that he'd sold similar prototypes elsewhere. At his office in Zurich, Edwin Ballier rifles through documents until he finds what he's looking for. He says it's a blown-up photograph of the timer fragment that Tom Thurman displayed on TV. And he now says he's certain it's not from the batch he sold to Libya. This fragment of printed circuit board is from a prototype timer. I took those timers to what was then East Germany. Ballier says he sold the prototypes to the East German secret police, the Stasi. The Stasi supplied a variety of terrorist groups, including the early suspects in Lockerbie, the PFLPGC, says the former CIA official Canestraro. At the same time, Canestraro says Ballier 
can't be trusted to give an honest opinion on who bought his timer and used it to blow up Pan Am 103. Given the fact that he has an investment with the Libyans, he's been a supplier of devices that are only used for, for lethal purposes, and the fact that he has provided cover facilities for Libyan intelligence, I don't know how much you can believe, Mr. Borgay. A source close to the defense team who spoke on the condition he not be named says, forget the claims and counterclaims. Even if the Libyan government did buy the timer in 1985, the defense will argue that does not link the two Libyan defendants directly to the bomb that destroyed the Pan Am jet three years later. A more direct piece of evidence is the clothing recovered from the bomb suitcase in Lockerbie and traced to the shop here on Malta. The indictment says the Libyan defendant, Megrahi, bought those clothes. But that claim appears to rely on an ambiguous statement from the shopkeeper, Tony Gauci. Remember, Gauci once said convicted terrorist Mohammed Abu Talb looked like the shopper. But 11 months later, according to Scottish police records, in February of 1991, detectives showed Gauci a photo of the Libyan Megrahi. The police transcript quotes Gauci as saying, He would perhaps have to look about 10 years or more older, and he would look like the man who bought the clothes. I can only say that of all the photographs I've been shown, this photograph is the only one really similar to the man who bought the clothing, if he was a bit older, other than the one my brother showed me. That last remark is an apparent reference to the earlier suspect, Taub. We went to ask Tony Gauci who he really thinks bought those clothes, but Gauci long ago stopped talking to reporters. I tell you bye-bye, don't come anymore. Eh? I've come back to ask you if you don't can clarify. Don't don't come anymore. Independent legal experts say Gauci probably won't be much use to the prosecution in the Netherlands. When asked about apparent weaknesses in the evidence against the Libyans, former investigators have often said, just wait, there's an eyewitness, a Libyan defector who knew the defendants in Malta. The former British intelligence official, David Shaler, said the defectors saw one or both of the Libyan defendants at the Malta airport carrying a bag like the one that contained the bomb. There was a witness under the witness protection scheme in the U.S. who was given a witness statement talking about McGrath and FEMA bringing off a brown Samsonite suitcase the morning before the attack. This guy worked in the Libyan Arab Airlines office. He had every reason to know these things. But two sources with access to the defense team's pre-trial statements told us that in the run-up to the trial, the eyewitnesses' claims have turned out to be vague and not very damning. The sources say in a recent deposition with defense lawyers, the witness could only say he saw a man, possibly the defendant McGrahi, carrying a suitcase in the Malta airport sometime in December 1988. Finally, the prosecution's claim that the Lockerbie bomb was first planted on a plane in Malta appears open to question. As evidence for the Malta connection, Shaler cites a Frankfurt airport baggage list from the day of the bombing in December 1988. When Scottish police did pick up evidence indicating that the bomb may have been put on the plane in Malta, it was only at that point the German police actually admitted that they had a piece of paper, a computer printout saying an unaccompanied piece of luggage was transferred from flight KM180 into flight PA103A, which took off from Frankfurt. That is, he says, a bag was transferred from the Maltese jet to the Pan Am plane that flew on to London. But an internal FBI memo from October of 1989 said to draw that conclusion from the airport baggage record, quote, while not patently incorrect, is misleading. The memo from the FBI's office in Bonn 
says the baggage list gives no concrete indication that any bag, let alone one carrying a bomb, was transferred from the Air Malta flight to the Pan Am plane. The German government also looked into what happened at the Frankfurt airport the day Pan Am 103 exploded. An investigating magistrate issued a report saying there was no evidence a bag was switched from the Air Malta flight to the Pan Am plane. The German government suspended proceedings against the Libyan suspects in 1992, citing a lack of evidence. One expert on Middle East terrorists says he finds the very notion that the Lockerbie bomb started its journey in Malta implausible. Noel Cook was chief of counterterrorism for the U.S. Defense Department from 1981 to 1986. Cook says terrorists who wanted to blow up a plane over the North Atlantic would not plant the bomb nearly a thousand miles away and rely on two luggage transfers by airline workers. I can tell you this much that I know about terrorism. It's simple. You don't complicate life. Life's complicated enough as it is. If you've got a target, you want to get as close as you can to it, and you don't go through a series of permutations that provide opportunities for failure, that provide opportunities for discovery. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Shaler, the former British intelligence agent, counters that the Pan Am terrorists might have routed the bomb on three planes to make its origin harder to trace. Former Lockerbie investigators like Vincent Canestraro insist the Libyans will be proven guilty at the trial. At the same time, Canestraro says the evidence implicating Iran and the Syria-based PFLPGC still looks compelling, too. I do think the Libyans carried out, but I believe more it was a handoff from the PFLPGC after their own operational cell was compromised. Canestraro says the Bush administration's conclusion back in 1991 that the PFLPGC was not involved in Lockerbie presupposed too many coincidences. The U.S. Justice Department, in its indictments, contends that these were two separate independent operations and not not known to each other. Uh, that's always seemed a bit uh, difficult to, to accept that two major terrorist groups were targeting the same airliner out of the same uh, location, Frankfurt, Germany, at the same time. And that both hid their bombs in Toshiba cassette players and placed them in brown Samsonite suitcases. So if the question is, who conspired to blow up Pan Am 103? Iran, Syria, the PFLPGC, or Libya? Canestraro's answer is, maybe all of the above. Ravel, the former head of the FBI's Lockerbie investigation, says he agrees that's possible. The ultimate perpetrator in this crime has not been fully established. There's absolutely no way in my mind that the two Libyans would have acted without the direct authority of Gaddafi. But there's also the very strong possibility that Gaddafi himself could have been acting uh, on behalf of the Iranians. Ravel and Canestraro say prosecutors may have chosen not to implicate Iranian and Syrian suspects in order to narrow their case for practical legal reasons. Some relatives of those killed on Pan Am 103 have also wondered aloud if Middle East politics played a role in that decision. The early suspects, members of the PFLPGC, had close ties to Syrian intelligence agencies. At the same time Lockerbie investigators were turning away from that group and toward Libya, the West was actively courting Syrian President Hafez Assad for his help in the Middle East peace process and the Persian Gulf War. Middle East expert Shibli Telhami of the University of Maryland 
says he doubts that high-ranking U.S. or British officials steered the Lockerbie investigation away from Syrian terrorists to appease Assad. Having said this, certainly had the evidence led to Syria at that time, it would have been extremely inconvenient and very, very complicated in the U.S. diplomacy. So if evidence later came that implicated Libya, that certainly would be that it would lead to a sense of relief. U.S. Justice Department officials have long insisted the investigation turned on just one thing, the evidence. Still, pre-trial hearings have made it clear the defense will try to suggest in the coming trial that the Iranian government and Syria-based terrorists were the real culprits. There are also signs that an even more provocative claim will get resurrected in the courtroom, that covert U.S. government drug operations may have been linked to the targeting of Pan Am 103. In the early 1990s, Time magazine and TV networks on both sides of the Atlantic produced major stories exploring those claims. A private investigator hired by Pan Am claimed members of the PFLPGC took advantage of a controlled drug smuggling route involving U.S. agents to slip the bomb on the Pan Am jet. Government officials vehemently denied the claim and still do. Michael Hurley headed the Drug Enforcement Administration's Cyprus office in 1988. I can tell you without equivocation that if there was any, and I mean even a smell of government involvement in Pan Am 103, I'd be the first one up snitching on the government. Hurley and other DEA officials say they weren't running any controlled sting operation through the Frankfurt and London airports at the end of 1988. But it appears defense lawyers may try to prove otherwise at the Lockerbie trial. Two men who were high-ranking security managers with Pan Am at the time told us they've given statements to the defense team, saying they were told of a U.S. government drug operation on their airline through Frankfurt at the time Pan Am 103 was destroyed. It was at a meeting, which was a regular kind of forum. It was the Heathrow Airport Airline Security Officers Association meeting. Jim Barrick was the London-based manager of corporate security for Pan Am in 1988. He says at a quarterly meeting a couple of months before the bombing, Phil Connolly approached him during a break. Connolly was one of the highest-ranking investigators in British customs and a 20-year acquaintance of Barracks. And it was at that time that he gave me the indication that he had been the British customs representative at a meeting in Germany uh, where there were representatives of German customs and also uh, DEA, and where it became known to Phil that uh, Pan Am, in actual fact, was being used as a conduit or a route on which drug shipments were being allowed from Europe to the U.S. Another Pan Am security manager at Heathrow, Mike Jones, says he too was present when Connolly told the story. Philip Connolly is now retired from British Customs. We could not reach him for comment. A source close to the defense team says Connolly has also given a deposition and could be called as a witness at the trial. It's quite difficult to come back and picture what it was like because your memory, you allow your memory to do certain things, which is shade out the, the horrors. Bill Parr is a longtime resident of Lockerbie, Scotland. He's a volunteer search and rescue worker. He and his dog spent the night of December 21st, 1988, finding and marking bodies that had fallen from the sky. 
In his Land Rover, Parr gives us a tour of the places he went that night. From time to time, he falters and his eyes fill up. I hadn't realised I sort of managed to push a lot of it behind, but uh, there's all these hills at the back here. This is where the large number of bodies were found. Parr says one of the hardest things to face is the likelihood that many of the victims were conscious during the last moments of their lives as they fell to earth. He recalls finding the bodies of two young women in a field, still strapped to their seats, their arms wrapped tightly around one another, and their fingers crossed. Jane and Jim Swire spend their summers on Scotland's Isle of Skye, a couple of hundred miles from where their daughter died over Lockerbie. The Swire's summer home overlooks windswept coastland dotted with sheep, highland cattle, and crofts, small stone houses painted white. Jane Swire says her daughter loved Skye. Whenever I see the sea sparkling and the mountains purple and the sky shot with tangerine and blue, I think, well, Flora should be seeing this. She should be here to enjoy this with her family. And I know she never can. And that just highlights and endorses the, the, the cruelty and the sadness. The Swires say if the two Libyan defendants really killed their daughter and 269 other people, they hope that will become clear at the trial. But Jim Swire says his grief is made worse by a suspicion that the main culprits behind the bombing are getting away. Overwhelmingly, the, the one thing that matters and keeps coming to the surface is our loss and, more importantly, Flora's loss. She lost the whole of the rest of her life. We've lost her lovely company for the rest of our lives. But yes, the, the failure to get to the, the root of it uh, has kept my anger burning. The Lockerbie bombing has been called the world's biggest unsolved murder. Some who lost loved ones on Pan Am 103 say they're afraid that won't change, no matter what the verdict in the Netherlands. With Ian Ferguson, I'm John Bewin. Still to come, an interview with the legal scholar who helped break the stalemate and make the upcoming trial possible, and a conversation about the case from the U.S. government's perspective. I'm Bill Buesenberg. This is Shadow Over Lockerbie from American Radio Works and NPR, National Public Radio. You can find out more about the Lockerbie investigation online at AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll find photographs of the disaster and of some of the people in this report. You'll also find more details on the evidence in the case, along with maps, documents, and links to other Lockerbie sites. All that plus the complete audio of this special report. Point your browser to AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Florence and John Schumann Foundation, with additional support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. American Radio Works is the National Documentary Unit of Minnesota Public Radio, in cooperation with NPR, National Public Radio.
This is Shadow Over Lockerbie, a special report from American Radio Works. I'm Bill Busenberg. With the trial of the two Libyans set to begin in May, here's what we know. That the evidence against the defendants, at least the evidence that government officials have touted over the years, appears less than rock solid. That some close to this case still suspect the Iranian government and Syrian-based terrorists may have played a role in the bombing and that the trial may not completely solve the Lockerbie puzzle. Now for more insight into how this trial came about and where it might lead, we turn to Robert Black, professor of Scots Law at Edinburgh University in Scotland. Professor Black helped make the coming trial possible by proposing the unusual deal to hold the trial in a neutral country. We asked him how he managed to put that deal together. When the United Nations imposed sanctions upon Libya, Uh, in order to try to induce it to hand over the two suspects, Libya refused, and there was an impasse. Britain and the United States were insisting that they should be handed over for trial, either in America or in Scotland, and Libya was saying, no, we refuse. We don't think they could get a fair trial in either of those countries. So I came up with a possible solution, and that was to have a trial under the law of Scotland, but outside the geographical boundaries of Scotland. I put that proposal forward uh, to the Libyans in early 1994, in January. They immediately accepted it, and by the Libyans in this context, I mean both the Libyan government and the Libyan uh, lawyers who are defending the accused. What then happened was that Britain and the United States had to agree to the scheme, and they didn't do that until August of 1998, more than four years later. But that's what caused the delay. Is it fair to say that uh, a lot of people are surprised that this trial, in fact, is going forward? I think that is a fair comment. I think certainly the governments of Britain and the United States for many years after these charges were first brought, which was in November 1991, really didn't think there would ever be a trial. And I think that has given rise to certain difficulties now that the trial is going ahead, because perhaps not as much or as careful preparation has been done in the intervening years as would have been done if they had genuinely believed a trial was going to take place. I wonder, going back to Libya, did you meet with uh, uh, Colonel Qaddafi? Are you surprised that uh, he agreed to let these two Libyans go to the Netherlands for the trial? No, I'm not. Uh, After Britain and America put forward their proposal for a trial in the Netherlands in August of 1998, there was a great deal of publicity in the United States and in Britain to the effect that Colonel Gaddafi was playing for time. He was trying to wriggle out of the commitment that the Libyan government had given to me in January 1994. I never actually thought that that was what was happening. I met Colonel Gaddafi on two occasions, and I was convinced as a result of those meetings that Colonel Gaddafi did want this trial to take place. Okay, a little bit about the trial itself. Uh, As I understand it, there won't be a jury in the Netherlands, but it will be a trial before three Scottish judges who will decide the verdict. Yes, it's very difficult uh, to give a sense of this kind of trial because in a trial of this seriousness, this is the first time it has ever happened in Scotland. Professional lawyers in Scotland tend to be of the view that judges sitting alone 
are more likely to bring in a verdict of guilty than is a jury. Because we do have, for lesser crimes in Scotland, the possibility of a non-jury trial with a judge sitting alone. And the received wisdom in the legal profession in Scotland is that it is much easier to get an acquittal from a jury than it is from a professional judge. So from that standpoint, it could be argued that these men, these two Libyan accused, will have a tougher time before this court than they would have had if there had been a jury. I'm wondering if you have any sense of how long this trial might go forward, how long it will take. Uh, it could be a very long trial. Uh, there are people in Scotland who are speculating that it will last at least a year. Uh, I myself think that that probably is a bit of an exaggeration. I would expect that it might last five or six months. I would be surprised if it lasted as long as a year. I wonder if you can talk about, uh, from your reading of the indictment, what are the actual facts that the Scottish prosecutors are going to have to prove uh, to convict these two Libyans? It will have to be shown that, effectively, they set on its route the suitcase containing the bomb and that they knew that that suitcase contained a bomb. Will they be able to prove that? Can you say anything about that? From what has appeared in the public domain, it would appear that there is material available to the defense, which, on the face of it, might make it appear that it would be difficult for any court to be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt about the prosecution version of events. I think it will be a tough case to prove. And of course, one of the problems is, is that the events that the witnesses will be giving evidence about took place more than 11 years ago. And so the prosecution is the one which has to prove its case. And the longer the period between the events of December 1988 and the trial, the more difficult it will be for them to prove what actually happened. Robert Black is professor of Scots Law at Edinburgh University. For the rest of this hour, we look at the Lockerbie investigation from the perspective of U.S. counterterrorism policy. We spoke with three experts, Robert Oakley, a former diplomat and State Department official. Mr. Oakley was ambassador-at-large for counterterrorism in the mid-1980s. Philip Wilcox, who served more recently as the State Department's ambassador for counterterrorism from 1995 to 1997. And Sonia Popovich, who has taught on international relations and terrorism at Barnard College. She is also vice president of Victims of Pan Am 103. Her then-fiancé was killed when that plane was blown up over Lockerbie. We began by asking each of our guests, starting with Robert Oakley, if they believe the right people are going on trial in the Netherlands. I think it's as good as you can do under the circumstances. I mean, uh, ideally, of course, I guess you want to place the responsibility where it belongs upon uh, Omar Gaddafi. But I think uh, under the circumstances, the two people most directly involved at a senior level in orchestrating the attack are going on trial. Uh, Ambassador Wilcox? Uh, yes, the Justice Department, the FBI, uh, uh, fellow law enforcement intelligence agencies around the world uh, investigated the case for three years. They did an exhaustive job, and 
and they built a far powerful case uh, identifying these two Libyan uh, suspects. So I think they have the right people. There are various other hypotheses. None of them proved uh, uh, to be true, uh, and I think it's uh, there's a powerful weight of evidence suggesting the culpability of these two. And Sonia Popovich, please. Well, I'm afraid we won't know the answer to that until the uh, trial itself happens, and even perhaps not then. I mean, the trial uh, in the Netherlands is a trial of the guilt or innocence of these two people, and um, Hopefully we will know more then. The more I have learned of this case, the less I do understand about it. Um, if these two are responsible, then indeed I would have to um, echo Ambassador Oakley's point that certainly responsibility lay on the shoulders of Muammar Gaddafi. It's possible that they're guilty and then they're acquitted or that they have a verdict of not proven, in which case we probably will never really know. Right now, as you look at the case that's coming, do you think we will really know all that happened in the bombing of Pan Am? 103. In other words, do you expect that the case will be closed by the end of this trial? Quite frankly, having the amount of evidence that's been gathered so far uh, that Phil Wilcox referred to has convinced me, obviously, we need a trial to go through the uh, legal procedures, but uh, I'm convinced. On the other hand, I'm also convinced it'll never be closed and that there will be things that we won't know and there'll be suspicions on the part of uh, a number of people that uh, maybe somebody else did it uh, or the Libyans didn't do it or uh, it won't be closed any more than we ever able to close the file on who killed JFK. Ever since the indictment of the Libyans, I think that some have speculated that there were real strategic concerns behind that. In other words, that it was more appealing for the United States and the British governments to accuse Libya as opposed to for example, Iran or Syria, uh, because of the U.S. Uh, interest in working with Syria at the time on the peace process and at, in the Gulf War, which was occurring at that time. I'm wondering, do these other national interests sometimes outweigh punishing terrorists, even in a case like this? Uh, Ambassador I, Wilcox? I, I have confidence that the United States Department of Justice doesn't uh, indict people for political reasons and that uh, if there were not adequate evidence for this indictment, they would not have brought it forward. Let me address your, your, ba your more basic question. I can't imagine the United States would bring trial on the basis of false evidence or something of that sort. On the other hand, uh, when there are questions, uh, I think that bigger political considerations do have some influence in what you want to do. If you have a fuzzy case, uh, then the United States uh, might decide uh, not to proceed or the United States might decide not to take the judicial track at all. They may decide to act in some other way. <clears throat> I'm not sure how much hard evidence we had about the relationship between uh, some of the places bombed uh, after the uh, bombings of our own embassies in Dar es Salaam and Nairobi. But uh, that didn't await a case of court of law. Sonia, please. Sonia Popovich. Um, let me take another example. Um, when they had the Kobar Towers and Dharan bombings in Saudi Arabia, we didn't say, well, uh, you know, how are you dealing with this case? Let's bomb Saudi Arabia. It's our ally. Yet when there were the embassy bombings in Dar es Salaam and Nairobi, uh, we bombed Sudan and Afghanistan. I mean, I, I don't think we'd ever take such action against an ally. I think that if you're a pariah state, you're likely to be punished. But if you're not a pariah state, you may well get away with something. One of the things that we've heard from law professor Robert Black, who arranged to get, make this case go forward in the Netherlands, is that the Libyans agreed in 1994 to turn over these two men, and it was, he felt, the United States and the 
and the British governments that really did not agree to this trial until 1998. What happened for those four years? Why did the U.S. not want to proceed? Well, it it is an extraordinary concession for the United States and the United Kingdom to carry out a trial under the law of either country in a foreign country. It required a special act of parliament. Ultimately, the U.S. and the U.K. agreed because we wanted to get on with the trial, and it was structured in a way that assured us uh, that it would not prevent the presentation of evidence and the, uh, the kind of trial that would have been carried out in the U.S. or the U.K., I was under the impression that, well, as um, Ambassador Wilcox noted, that the U.S. uh, did not want to make that concession in 94 to Gaddafi to have this, uh, you know, Scottish, a little little piece of Scotland, so to speak, on um, uh, Dutch soil. I keep wondering if they're going to plant heather there. Um, (laughs) uh, But uh, in my conversations with Secretary Albright, she stressed that, that the families needed to have some trial. We needed to see something happen. Um, And I think that as after it hit a decade, uh, there was a sense that let's do something to make this trial happen. I'm wondering if the Libyans are acquitted, where does that leave us in this case? Well, if if they're acquitted, and I know, for example, those who care perhaps most intensely, many of the family members, um, do see that as the end of the road, because it's unlikely we're going to hear or know much more than we do now if, if they're acquitted or if it's not proven, which is a very, you know, a very, a very possible outcome and certainly leaves everyone feeling dissatisfied and not knowing really what happened. There would still be in the aftermath of an acquittal um, continued, uh, continued lack of diplomatic relations between Libya and the United States and continued uh, U.S. government sanctions, I believe, for some time. Uh, I think uh, it would be it would be a long time before the United States would warm to uh, normal relations with Libya, uh, if there were even if there were an acquittal of the two suspects. Let me end by asking uh, you, Sonia, how important is if you could you've talked to a number of the family members, you're in contact with many of them. I'm wondering how important they see this case and how much they're looking at this to bring a kind of closure to the whole long episode. Well, I can't speak for everyone, but everyone I have spoken to sees it. Uh, I mean, what is closure after all? I mean, to some extent, that never really exists. But I think the the trial is very, very important. And for many people, um, there's, uh, I mean, we've been waiting for this for such a long time. And I know that a number of family members are planning to be there really almost the whole time. And uh, some of them have quit their jobs to do so. It's extremely important. I mean, anyone who's been a victim of a crime to have your day in court, uh, to have some account counting when people's lives are ripped apart, uh, families destroyed, whole families in some cases were killed. And the, just the existence of a trial means quite a bit to very, very many people. Sonia Popovich is a counterterrorism expert and vice president of the victims of Pan Am 103. We also heard from two former State Department ambassadors for counterterrorism, Robert Oakley and Philip Wilcox. This has been a special report from American Radio Works, Shadow Over Lockerbie. It was reported and produced by Ian Ferguson and John Bewin, and edited by Christopher Joyce and Lauren Jenkins, associate producer Stephanie Curtis, mixing by Tom Mudge, interns Gabrielle Zuckerman and Sean Madigan. The managing editor of American Radio Works is Stephen Smith. The project manager is Nancy Fushin. 
I'm Bill Busenberg. To learn more about the Lockerbie investigation, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Major funding for American Radio Works is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Florence and John Schumann Foundation, with additional support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. American Radio Works is the national documentary unit of Minnesota Public Radio, in cooperation with NPR, National Public Radio.